1: the show before the show podcast the official podcast of minor league baseball as we uh turn the corner around the middle of october with samuel dykstra in the phoenix area in benjamin hill in new york city my name is tyler mon sam's uh just uh chilling enjoying a, a solid glass of orange juice this morning how is it sam you pulp or no pulp i am no pulp thank god um, i
0: I, I could go either way. Like, I'm not going to turn you away if you if you offer me a pulpy orange juice. But if I have my choice, which I do this morning, I choose no pulp. Ben, pulp, no pulp.
2: Uh, I'm agnostic as an adult. As a kid, that was an absolute – as a picky eater as a kid, that was an absolute – The worst. Like, yeah. I just, like, just, on a deep, fundamental level, found it disgusting. But I look back to a lot of my little kid habits, and I'm just like, oh, my God, man. <laughs> Grow up, <laughs> you
1: know,
2: and then you did, you and did then I girl. did, because uh, uh, it's ridiculous. And I think back to like what my parents had to deal with and these stamp <laughs> off
1: about what they eat, and,
2: especially and now I, that
1: you're a father, I would imagine yeah. that just rings that much truer.
2: Yeah, it's it's gonna be tough, um, navigating that, um, <laughs> as it was for my parents, but so now pulp, yeah, I'll take it any, any way I can get it. Uh, I'm not that into pulp, uh, the Brit rock band, you know, front by canvas. Ah. Cocker um, totally I'm more of a heavy rock guy don't get into the Brit pop but hey shout out to pulp <laughs> and uh, shout out to Jarvis Cocker because my grandfather's named Jarvis and there ain't too many Jarvi out in the world so
1: I had a great-grandfather named Angus why are there not cool names like Jarvis and Angus anymore I don't know. I don't think there were many that many Jarvises at any point, really. It's, it's, <laughs> that could be. That's a good point. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'm still like a little anti pulp. If you serve me like a fresh squeeze glass of orange juice, sure, that's fine. But I'm never going to the store and buying the orange juice with the pulp. That's like, no, that's like the sign of a serious issue.
0: We we don't have any Tony Soprano's on this.
1: <laughs> we do uh, not. On <laughs> that is true. We're zero for three in that regard. Yeah. Uh. Well, that'll do it for this week's episode of the show. Before the <laughs> show, this episode called Talking Pulp with uh, Ben, Sam, and Tyler. Um. No, we welcome you into this week's episode. We are uh nearing potentially our uh, World Series matchup coming up here over the next few days. Our resident Phillies fan Ben Hill is here. He and his team headed. uh Well, he's not headed to to Phoenix. <laughs> he's going to watch the game that's going on in Phoenix, but uh, you know, this is the second week in a row Diamondbacks fans. I'm sorry, but uh Ben, I think it would be cheaper for you to buy a round-trip ticket and a hotel and get one of these $5 seats for game three of the National League Championship Series and fly back to New York than to get a ticket to a game in Philly. Um It's yeah, come on d fans. I get it. It's a work day. It's the afternoon, but like, you know, Come on, buy some, your team's in the National League Championship Series for the first time in 16 years. Get some tickets. How are you feeling going in uh, two games to none with a Phillies lead?
2: Oh, I've just been enjoying it every step of the way. Um, I actually got to go to game one uh, on Monday, um, which was great. And I went with my mom. It was her first uh, Phillies postseason game since, um, I don't know what game it was, but the 1983 World Series. Wow. So she'd taken 40 years off. She only really got back into the Phillies this year. Um I think towards the end of last year, she just realized like how much fun people were having and finally came around this year to be, to actually watching them. So, you know, she, she followed them all year and, you know, she's, she's funny as a baseball fan, you know, asks a lot of questions and, um, is still learning, you know, despite being the mother of Ben's biz, um, you know, she's still learning a lot about baseball, <laughs> <laughs> the this, this game, but, um, no, it was great, great atmosphere. Um, did public transportation the whole way, which was its own series of uh, adventures and misadventures. Um, I love the city of Philadelphia, but their their public transportation signage and communication and ticketing systems are just bafflingly poor. And it makes me upset every time I go because I just <laughs> want to support Philly all the time. And I just feel like, oh, guys, come on. If we're transferring to suburban station regional rail, and we have to get off at the City Hall station to do that. Why are there no signs for suburban station anywhere? Anywhere? Like, it's just the most basic stuff. That does seem very annoying. About the whole system. I mean, yeah. it just seems like the secret society you have to,
1: like, slowly <laughs> you learn. You have to take a class in it
3: mm-hmm. before
1: you can navigate it. So- uh, Well, coming up tonight, we're recording this on Thursday the 19th. So coming up tonight is Game 3 of the National League Championship Series. Today, I should say, this afternoon. Uh, And then this evening, Game 4, of the American League Championship Series. Um, Ben, we are uh, moving our way through really kind of the last of your regular season content here in 2023. Uh, And... And finishing off all the road trips and all that, uh, Columbus, a spot where you got to go late in the season, uh, home to one of my favorite people in minor league baseball, Matt Leininger, who is, uh, the, the big on field host. Uh, I say big because his Twitter handle is literally like big Matt. Uh, he's a, a former D one football player and he's just like as good a dude as exists in, uh, in baseball. Um, so a big shout out to Matt. Tell us about, uh, the, the Columbus trip and the stuff coming up from that.
2: Yeah, that's the, the final, uh, ballpark stop we have to stop to talk about on this uh, podcast and the, the final one you know featured in a full write-up uh in my newsletter the ben's biz beat and on milb.com um that came out uh just today in the newsletter and tomorrow friday uh it'll be up on the site and you can check it out i had not been to to see the columbus clippers uh huntington park since 2014 it have been nine years uh the clippers were established in 1977 but um Baseball in Columbus goes back to 1877 so it's another one of those cities that just has a ton of history and that's that history is really well reflected throughout the ballpark they've had a team historian uh, have the clippers uh Joe Santry for a lot of years and he uh, he was not at the game I attended um you know this most recently but 9 years ago I wrote a story about him and in his deep knowledge and uh, I know that's gone a long way to what the clippers have done Um, You know, throughout the ballpark with the signs honoring old players, plaques, um, a bar on the building in within the building in left field, uh, just filled with memorabilia. There's even like pictures and uh, baseball cards underneath the bar itself, I guess, protected by a layer of plexiglass or something of that nature. Uh, But it's just a great place to take in a lot of baseball history. But then at the same time, Huntington Park, you know, opened in 2009. And I don't want to say it feels new, but it feels pretty new all things considered you know beautiful downtown ballpark uh view of the skyline um within uh of the columbus skyline you know at the ballpark um a standalone structure in left field you know all brick that is you know kind of uh similar aesthetic to the surrounding downtown buildings it's part of the arena district uh, so it's also home to uh an NHL team, you know, walking distance from the Clippers, uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets, and there's also an MLS team as well nearby. I'm blanking on the name of the MLS team. Columbus uh, Crew. Their
1: stadium is insane. That place is amazing.
2: Yeah, so you can see the Crew, the Blue Jackets, and the Clippers all within a very short uh, space. So you know, it's a great downtown ballpark. Plenty of room to move. You know, 360 degree concourse, wide aisles. Uh, you know, great scoreboard. Score. Bo- score well, great scoreboard. Um, Interesting architecture. Uh, they have a victory bell there. And, you know, there was one in Indianapolis as well. I'm not sure how many victory bells are found around the minor leagues, but just that old-fashioned tradition of ringing the victory bell after a win. And uh, that's been a longstanding thing in Columbus. The victory bell they have was originally at the, you know, a downtown Columbus firehouse and then went from there to, its, to their former home of uh, Cooper Stadium, uh, which was then called Jet Stadium because the Columbus Jets, a baseball team, played there. Um, so that same victory bell, that's gotta be hundred years old or even more, uh, is still on the concourse. And they have a long running team theme song, which I believe was featured years ago on the special episode of the show before the show, I believe you are right with all team theme songs. We keep saying we need to a dig that up and disseminate it again and B do another one. That was a, a really great piece of a uh, minor league content. If I, <laughs> if I do say so myself, but Columbus Clippers ring your bell, a polka style ditty.
1: And, the uh, uh, Clippers old stadium, by the way, Cooper Stadium, uh, part of that stadium is still standing, which is very cool and eerie and weird. And uh, I drove by it a few years ago, and it's it's fascinating to just like you're driving along in a in an area where you're not really expecting to see much of anything cool. And then all of a sudden here comes uh, part of the grandstand. I think they tore down essentially 80 percent of the stadium. And then for whatever reason, the uh, third base side. Grandstand remains standing, and sort of like the old team offices, but it's all fenced off and closed off, and everything. It's it's really, um, it it's a very cool, almost like apocalyptic feeling thing. It's really it's really cool.
2: Yeah, I wish I'd been able to see that. I drove straight in that morning from Indianapolis, and then the plan was to fly out to New York City that evening. My flight got canceled, um, and I had to spend an extra night in Columbus. Uh, but it did not occur to me to go visit a haunted baseball stadium that night, and and I, I should have. Um, yeah, Cooper Stadium. There's a statue of Harold Cooper outside of Huntington Park. He was um, you know, very influential influential in Columbus baseball. Uh, you know, he worked at that ballpark when he was a kid. Um, allegedly his first job at the ballpark was wiping mold off of hot dogs, which is a practice I don't think uh, continues to this mm, day. Yeah. Um, but Harold Cooper went on to help bring the Columbus Jets to Columbus. And then when they folded and disappeared, he helped bring the Clippers to Columbus. So um that stadium, which was initially, I believe, Redbird Stadium, then became Jet Stadium, then finally became Cooper Stadium. And again, they moved to Huntington Park in 2009. Uh, another little interesting bit of history in that ballpark. It's not on display. I was talking to uh, Chris Sprague, the team's uh, you know media relations director. Um, I'm not sure his exact title, but he's been uh, with the Clippers and he worked for the International League itself for many years. So he knows a lot about uh, the team and its history. He took me up to the team offices where in those team offices, you can find the governor's cup. You remember the governor's cup, of course, uh, was awarded to the winner of the international league from 1933 through 2019. Then after the reorganization of minor league baseball, different playoff system, uh, I guess it was discontinued, but because the Clippers won the cup in 2019, it's just still there. And a, I hope they find a way by, by they, I mean, just, the International League, Minor League Baseball, find a way to bring the Governor's Cup back into circulation because it's it's a really heavy, big, impressive, and it's literally like a cup, you know, big trophy-style cup and has the winners engraved, and it's kind of like the Stanley Cup and that, you know, it goes from team to team. It's the same one that goes there year to year. I was told, though, however, that that was actually the third Governor's Cup uh, since it had been established in 1933 and the second one met its untimely demise and i remembered this once it was mentioned again to me but the scranton wilkesbury rail riders won the governor's cup in 2008 they had it on display in their team offices and in 2009 an angry fan who was really irate over like a catering issue picked it
1: up and smashed it <laughs> what yeah holy cow that so, is an incredible uh, minor league baseball story. I feel like we need like a true crime podcast about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: I did find a little local news article about it. I'm not sure if we covered it on MILB.com, but I was like, what a f- fascinating little tale the time the governor's cup got destroyed. So I guess <laughs> they got a new one, hopefully in time for that <laughs> 2009 winner. And um, that one is the one that's in uh currently in the possession of the Columbus Clippers, their 2019 governor's cup that still resides um, at Columbus. And, you know, that was also what happened inst- to the first one. Do you know, you said there were three. Know. Yeah. Or- that's another good. I could get in touch with Chris or, you know, some uh, more historical minded person. I think Chris did know um, Chris Page with the Clippers um, how long that went, one went on. And at that point it might've just been 40, 50 years into the game, whatever. They just decided it was time for a refurbished shiny new one. I'm not sure uh, the story there, but it was really cool to see. And that was instituted in 1933, the governor's cup um, in tandem with a truly groundbreaking playoff format. We think nothing of it now, but the international league uh, in 1933 was the first league to add like a multi-round playoff format to create more interest in the long baseball season. And that was called the Shaughnessy system uh, after the uh, president of the international league at that time i cannot remember his first name let's just say frank shaughnessy something like that but shaughnessy was the uh the president of the international league so i believe they had the top four teams get in the playoffs and play two rounds and now that's you know commonplace and endless variations of that and more complex versions of that but that in 1933 was it was groundbreaking then so that's why i like baseball history you can just go on all these tangents and as i write uh, in the newsletter and in the forthcoming milb.com article about Columbus, you know there's a lot to explore uh, when you go to Huntington Park while also being in a great new new seeming ballpark and uh, some good food too. There's an outpost of Dirty Frank's Hot Dog Palace in that in that standalone left field building, and um, they have all sorts of specialty dogs. My designated eater, a guy named Austin Call, one of the guys he got um, or one of the hot dogs he got from Dirty Frank's had jalapenos. Uh cheddar cream cheese and tater tots. So pretty good, pretty good combination. That sounds amazing.
1: Yeah, Tyler just I'm very, out. I'm very into that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Two things real quick. One, it was Frank Shaughnessy. So
2: what right. you? Yeah. That, good, good, good. I pulled that out of thin air. I was like, eh, let's just go with Frank and hope it works out. Thank you.
0: Yeah, Frank. It was nickname was Shag. It was Frank Shag Shaughnessy. I'm sure Shag is a play off Shaughnessy, uh in a way that the early 20th century only could, um, but the other thing I, you know, I, I, we were. I knew we were talking about Columbus, so I just wanted to pull up attendance figures. Attendance this year in Columbus, they were second in AAA with an average of 7,847 fans per game. Um, is there anything you feel like they're doing especially well to bring in fans, or is it just that urban environment that you're talking about? How it's very centralized, it's very easy to get to, and it's in a I don't want to say a sports craze town, but it is, a, you know, sports are a big part of the, the culture there in Columbus.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was a small sample size for me. I, I can't pinpoint anything operationally that was like, whoa, this is a total industry outlier and it's really working. But like I said, I mean, I just think, I mean, they have a great front office. Uh, their team president, Ken Schnacky has been there for decades and decades. So there's just a lot of institutional knowledge, great understanding of the city of Columbus. And yeah, like, like we said, like a great ballpark in a central location combined with a team that has a lot of history in a, in a baseball town with a lot of history. I just think it's been a good formula for success. And um, yeah, that location, I'm sure, you know really helps. I mean, downtown ballparks, what can you say? They bring some hassles, but to me, it's just such a much more successful template than – Going 10, 15, 20 miles outside of the city and just being in an otherwise open area that doesn't have that walkability and that sense of the city itself. So uh, I think that's a, a huge part of that.
1: All right, Ben, we are uh, you mentioned that when you went to Columbus, you were coming from Indianapolis. You got a story up on the site from Indianapolis. I've also got one uh from Louisville. Uh give us the uh the rundown. We talked a little bit about your Howard Kelman story from last week, but that's up on the site now.
2: Yeah, you can read the story on Howard Kelman, who's been broadcasting games for the Indianapolis Indians since 1974. So uh, check out that story. I believe he is the longest tenured broadcaster in minor league baseball. I always hesitate to make that claim definitively because it always feels like you might be forgetting somebody. But 1974 to today. And um yeah, I mean, that's just a, a run of longevity uh, at any level of sports that is you know, really remarkable. So it's great talking to Howard. And you can check that story out on MILB.com. Uh, also, earlier this week, there was a story on another uh, baseball long-timer. I seem to be on a little bit of a kick with the veterans, but um, the president of the Louisville Bats, Greg Greg Gallette, Galliette, <laughs> I should really know how to say his uh, last name, uh, considering I've just written a story about him, um, but he has been president of the louisville bats since uh well he hasn't been president since 1985 he's been working for the louisville bats since 1985 um so just a, a remarkably you know long run for him and it was interesting to talk to him about how minor league baseball has changed from playing at a college football stadium um with 35,000 capacity uh to today playing at a downtown stadium and um you know, so get into that, that that a little bit, you know, some of his uh, early memories at Cardinal Stadium, uh, the concerts they hosted there, you know, mem- uh, Grateful Dead fans uh, camping out around the ballpark and hanging their laundry outside his office, uh, that kind of thing. I-, I like talking to people about, you know, different eras of minor league baseball and ones that seem particularly foreign to us, you know, as we uh, navigate today's landscape.
1: All right, Ben. Well, we're going to pivot and talk about uh, one of the best times of the year, and that is fast approaching. It's Logovember coming up uh, in just a couple of weeks. Now, obviously, the uh, the days in minor league baseball are much different now in terms of how many rebrands we've got every offseason, redesigns, uh, refreshes for for team brands. But we do know that we got a couple of teams that are headed toward new looks in 2024, uh, and a team who teased – Something big coming on November 1st is the Greensboro Grasshoppers. Uh, What do you know out of Greensboro?
2: Yeah, not much or certainly not much uh, I can say right now. Um, But November 1st, event at the ballpark, uh, yeah, teasing a a new era of grasshoppers baseball, and that will uh, kick off. So-called logo vember, I believe it was Brandios, you know, the logo design company who came up with logo vember. But now it just seems to be used every every year, is just for those who pay attention that type of thing. Um, and we had some very uh, robust logo vembers for a lot of years. But uh, since the COVID season and the reorganization of minor league baseball, you know, the financial uncertainty, this uncertainty around the industry, um, obviously. Uh, less you know money to invest in in such things uh with with covid and what what a hit the teams took with that uh bottom line you know processes have changed somewhat you know for uh new logos and for rebrands and that kind of thing it's so it's been a little slow the last couple years and this year will not be as maybe robust as let's say i don't know 2018 or so um but i feel like it's on the way back up some uh some refreshes, some rebrands, some tweaking, some full-scale reinvention. Uh, it'll vary team by team, but we'll have a, a run of those uh, to look forward to uh, starting in November, and uh, we'll see what the Greensboro grasshoppers have up their, their sleeve or under their wing, or however you want to say
1: it, on uh, November 1st. He is Benjamin Hill. You can find him uh, all over the social medias at Ben's biz and the Ben's biz. And you can find his stuff, of course, at MILB.com. And uh, looking forward to getting a chance to uh, talk some uh, logo nerdery coming up here in a few weeks. Thanks, Ben.
2: Yeah, Tyler, you're the you're the man for the job when it comes to logo nerdery. <laughs> and uh, we'll go hard. <laughs> Can't wait.
3: Until then.
4: save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge
3: Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.
1: Well, continuing along on this week's episode of the show before the show, Sam's still in uh, the Grand Canyon State and wrapping up his time watching the Arizona Fall League, but uh, a lot of standout guys in the AFL from year to year, Sam, and uh, we're going to talk about a few of those uh, on this week's episode of the show before the show, and we're going to kick things off talking about prospects who right now would be overshadowed by what their big league team is doing unless they, you know, I don't know, put together an insane night on like the night off of when their big league team was playing the national league championship series and Philadelphia Phillies prospects were kind enough to do just that this week, which is pretty cool.
0: Yeah. So I was at the game in Scottsdale last night and uh, you know, some of these Phillies guys have really stood out during my time here. Whenever I go to a Scottsdale Scorpions game, Gabriel uh Rincones junior in particular I feel like has had a really strong fall but also Oliver Dunn has has done that too and you know when I pick my storylines every night part of the consideration has to be like hey is anybody gonna see this so if a Phillies guy does really well on a night where the the Phillies win say 10-0 in game two of the NLCS nobody's gonna see it and 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 that makes it a, a little bit more difficult that's something we have to consider in what we write so like you said Uh, I was at the Scottsdale game on Wednesday, and as the game was slowly unfolding, you realize how good the Phillies' prospects in that game were collectively doing. Uh, It ended up being that there were four prospects in the game from the Phillies for Scottsdale. They went and combined 11 for 15 with seven runs scored and six RBIs. Uh, Scottsdale ended up winning 98 on a walk-off win. They got the win because Oliver Dunn, a Phillies prospect who they actually got from the Yankees in the minor league portion of the Rule 5 draft last year, um, he had w- delivered the walk-off win with a walk. And he had some really good takes in that at bat. He was going up against Jacob Wallace, a Royals right-handed reliever. Um, I was talking to him afterwards and he was saying there were a lot of cutters that – he was laying off because he thought they were going to be a foot outside. And then at the last second, they would jolt towards the plate. And he was very happy that he was laying off those pitches, but they were some very close calls. Uh, He said it was his first walk-off ever at any level. He's never done that in little league, high school, anywhere, Uh, pros, what have you. So that was pretty cool. (laughs) So you could kind of tell because he didn't know how to celebrate. Uh, He got the walk-off win. He went about 10 feet up the line to first base, and they got Gatorade dumped on him. And it was like, yeah, I did it. And then, like, slur- slowly started walking towards the dugout. And everyone was like, no, you need to go to All right, base. this is it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, yeah, surprise actually threw the ball over to first base just to be like, hey, can we call him out for, like, not actually reaching the base, but the umpires let it go. Um, but, yeah, so it, he did really well. Gabriel Runconis Jr., actually had a triple to center field that Trackman said would have gone 452 feet. Uh, but the batter's eye in Scottsdale is in play. Right, right. Which is very confusing. I'm, very, I'm surprised they don't put very a line. Unique. Yeah, yeah, like where the wall would be and everything above that yellow line. But they don't do that in Scottsdale. They do that in most places. Um, so he yeah. hustled the whole way. He he'd said afterwards, like, I knew I hit it well, but I wasn't even going to get like a cheap double out of this, I knew I needed to hustle until somebody told me it was a home run. Uh, so I do credit to him for a hitting that ball and then b actually working his way through with the triple uh, because I thought it was gone off the bat. It it should have been gone four fifty two should not be triple. Um, but yeah, those guys. One thing I wanted to talk to them about was like, hey, you know, the Phillies organization right now is fueled by its bats. You see, Kyle Schwarber, Nick Castellanos, Bryce Harper. These guys are going off in the postseason with home runs. They are playing. With long ball, this is not just like we're going to dink and dunk runs. They are swinging for the fences and they are connecting. How does that trickle down? And they said it's not so much swinging for the fences that they are taking away from what the Major League Club is doing. It's getting your pitch and not missing. You know, having a disciplined approach to know that, hey, if this ball is dead red, I'm going to swing and I'm going to swing hard to make good contact. That's who we want to be. It's not just we're going to be swinging wildly and trying to be the next Kyle Schwarber because there's only one Kyle Schwarber. Um one thing the Rincona said was like everybody has a different swing. We know that. We're not trying to be somebody else that we're not. Um so it was just okay. fascinating to talk to those guys especially you know on the run that the the major league team is and to see that like I said trickle down Uh, to the minor leaguers and see them get hot at the same time. It's just, it's more of a funny coincidence than anything, but I do love that in, in the way baseball works, that this organization that we're all paying attention to, guess what? There are guys coming too, not far behind.
1: Uh, Sam, another prospect who has kind of stood out to you in the early going of the AFL is the Chicago Cubs infield prospect, James So It was the 56th overall pick back in 2021, uh, a second round selection. Uh, This year played in 83 games between uh, high A South Bend and double A Tennessee. Only three of those games were double A Tennessee, but uh, so
0: far you've liked what you've seen from him. Yeah, at least from the hitting side. And this is one reason I want to bring him up because, Triantos, since he was taken in the draft, like you said, Tyler, has always been known as a really, really good hitter. He's not a very big dude. I mean, you look at him, he's listed at uh, six foot one that might be on the big side, I I think. Um, He's a little bit smaller than that. But He's always hit really well. The guy can spray the ball around. He can take it where it's hit. It's mostly line drives right now. It's not a ton of power, but, like, there might be something in there as he kind of grows into it. He's still only 20 years old as we're talking here. He'll be turning 21 uh, before next season. Yeah, he'll be turning 21 next January. Uh, So he's still plenty young hit the ball really well you look at his stats so far he's second in the fall league with a 488 average uh he's 1.393 ops is tops in the fall league which is why i wanted to bring him up he's just doing a really good job of spraying it around he's getting triples by the bunches he's not the fastest guy in the world either but again if you're hitting it in the gaps and hustling out of the box which is something he told me he enjoys doing like when he hits the ball he's automatically looking for extra bases that's going to happen. You're going to get your triples. So uh, to see that play really well, the interesting thing for me with Triantos is what he's going to be defensively here in the fall league, because he's moved around so far. Uh, You know, some teams see him as a, uh, as an infielder. He's gotten a lot of time at second base. He's played some at third base, but they've also moved him to center field. Which, again, he's not the fastest guy in the world, but what he said to me was, as long as the ball is in front of me, I'll be okay. As long as I can see it and keep it in front of me and get my glove on it, I'll be fine. But they also tried him in left field the other night. Now, he's not going to play center field for the Cubs. I'm just telling you that right now because guess who's in that organization? Pete Crow Armstrong, the best defensive player in the minor leagues. Now he's a major leaguer, but we just named him the defender of the year in minor league baseball. Um, as long as PCA is in that org, Chantos isn't playing center. So they gave him a look and left. It's still a work in progress out there very much. So his arm actually works really well. He had a couple plays at the plate that he got it there. Like he made it close because of his arm, but there was one play. It was a ball hit straight to him. He was clearly under, it would have been the third out of the inning. And he just straight up dropped it. It was almost like his brain turned off. Um, and that it looked like, you know, it, (laughs) He was under it. He was settled under it. He's like, all I got to do is let it hit the glove and they'll be fine. And it didn't. So it's going to be a learning process for him out there if he's going to stick in left field. My thing is, if that's going to happen, he's going to need to add a little bit more power. But like so far, so good. Like I was saying in the fall league, he is doing that. He's slugging 805. He only has one home run. But again, the four triples are, are pushing that slugging percentage up. Uh, I'm just fascinated to see what he can be moving forward because he started out this year with a torn meniscus. That's why he was so limited. That's why he's in the fall league to make up for some of these at bats. He's making most of the at bats. It's just what's the glove going to be? You know, we'll find out at some point next year He's probably going to return to double A in, in an optimistic way. Maybe make triple A by the, the second half and be pushing for Wrigley by August, September. Um, But he's got to get that glove figured out first.
1: All right, Sam, a name that we have talked about a lot over the last couple of years, but obviously had a, a very up and down uh, 2023 um, with various uh, injuries and coming back from, uh, you know, the I guess the start of a season, which you thought, man, we're going to see this guy really factor into a, a big league rotation at some point soon. Didn't exactly go that way. Uh, but Ricky Tiedemann, um, who is finally healthy and getting back to work um, this year, only made really what felt like a handful of appearances. He did actually make 15 total starts this year. Uh, 11 of those were with AA New Hampshire, but an abbreviated season to say the least uh, for the Blue Jays prospects. What have you seen out of Ricky Tiedemann? This is such an important time for him to be able to, you know, face hitters, get some innings under his belt, uh, and head into the offseason with some momentum.
0: Yeah, I mean, the AFL is made for Ricky Teedman, right? Like, he's both a star pitcher. He's our top left-handed pitching prospect, according to MLB Pipeline, uh, and somebody who missed a lot of time during the season, like you said, Tyler, had dealt with a shoulder injury in the spring, was dealing with biceps issues in the middle of the summer. I was talking to some Blue Jay sources, and they were telling me during the year, listen, Ricky wants to pitch. Like, if it was up to him, he would be th- out there throwing six, seven innings. He thinks he's ready to go, but – We know what we have in him and we want to protect him. We don't want to push him too hard and have him get re-injured and have, you know, bicep turn into a forearm, turn into an elbow, turn into a Tommy John. Um, So, you know, they protected him. Now he's in the AFL. His first two outings were both five innings. His third was three, which I know caused some concern on Blue Jay's Twitter, but that was because he was playing in the Goodyear triple header last Saturday. The, The games in that triple header were only seven innings. So some teams were like, hey, we need pitchers to get work. Ricky We're sorry, we can't have you take up five-sevenths of this game. So they only allowed him to throw three innings. He struck out five in that game, gave up one run. So it was his normal self, only walked one. Um, but what stood out to me in that game was he was actually getting stronger as it went along. Now, we talked to Jesus Cano, who works for us for MLB Pipeline, has been doing a tremendous job for us down here in Arizona covering the AFL. Um, and he was saying, like, I knew I was limited, so I was pumping it a little harder there at the end. But his last 10 fastballs were all, every single one of them, at 96 to 97 miles per hour. Um, So the fact that he was gaining strength as it went along, was holding up well, uh, could touch 97 there at the end was really something to watch for me. His slider has looked really good. It's a sweeping slider. It's kind of long, but he throws it out of a three-quarters release, which makes it a little difficult to pick up. His changeup has always been really good. Uh, We were giving it plus-plus grades coming out of last year. Righties can't really touch it that well. He can be a pretty dominant, like, number two starter. It's just going to come down to health. But as we're standing here right now, he's tied for the AFL lead with 18 strikeouts. He's done that in 13 innings. He's given up four runs, so, like, a 2.77 ERA, good by any measure for sure. Um, In the early sample, he's not up there amongst the leaders. But, like, everything you could have hoped for Ricky Tiedemann has been here so far in the desert. So we'll see how much further he's gonna go. He's up to thirteen innings right now. Again, he's somebody who needs to make up for the innings and he's somebody who's champing at the bit to like get out there and pitch more. Uh we'll see what kind of reins the Blue Jays put on him. But for right now, so far so good for Ricky Tiedman.
1: Well, it is uh, the final days of Sam gallivanting around the desert in the Arizona Fall League and uh, getting a chance to talk with prospects near and far. And uh, he's got one
0: for this week's episode of the show before the show. Tee it up. Yeah, so this week's interview is with Corey Rozier, a Boston Red Sox outfield prospect playing out here in the Arizona Fall League. One reason I wanted to talk to him was because he has a little bit of an interesting story. He was a 2021 uh, draft pick was taken in the 12th round that year by the Seattle Mariners. He's since been traded twice first from the Mariners to the Padres and then the Padres to the Red Sox in the Eric Hosmer deal. He actually went with Hosmer from the Padres to the Red Sox. Um, so we talk a little bit about that. He's always been a speed guy. He sold 49 bases this year, he sold 40 bases a year ago. Um, so he's always looking to push the issue, issue on the base pass. Um, and that plays really well into today's game that's carried so far into the AFL. So we touch on that as well. And also just a bunch of minor league stuff, which I think made for a fun end to the interview. So stick through to the end and find out about some uh, some of Corey's thoughts on minor league things he's seen so far. So here's me talking to Corey Roger. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
4: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
0: All right, Corey, we're talking here on Monday, so we're about two weeks. We are two weeks into the AFL season so far. How do you feel like it's gone? Um,
4: Personally as a team. Well, personally. Let's start personally. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've been swinging the bat well, putting together solid quality at bats, kind of bouncing around the lineup, but I've been feeling good at the plate and playing good defense, so.
0: Yeah, at what point did the Red Sox come to you and say they wanted you to come here?
4: Um, It was about the third to last week of the season i mean we had mentioned it to them earlier in the year and then they finally let me know that uh they were going to send me here so it was obviously you know huge accomplishment and excited to be here
0: yeah so you approached them saying like this is something you were interested in
4: yeah i mean we mentioned it early like spring training and then yeah. just kind of let it marinate and as i start to put up numbers you know we circled back around and ended up working out so
0: yeah and what kind of instructions did you get for for coming here and you know what were you expected to work on
4: um, I think it's just getting more at bats under my belt, you know, yeah. kind of simulating uh, a big league season more. I mean, I think I played 115 games before coming yeah, here. Yeah. But uh, obviously, you know, the goal is to play 162 at the big league level, so just getting more at bats and being more along the lines of a big league season structure.
0: Yeah, and you played the year at both tri- A AA and A, knocking
4: on the door of Boston. What was your takeaway from seeing the upper minors? Um, obviously, you know, it's more competitive i'd say like around the zone on the pitching side i mean in the lower levels it felt like guys would you know have big misses and it sometimes you know four pitch walks but up there when guys miss it's more competitive misses around the zone i'd say
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and one thing that stood out to me looking at your numbers is that the slugging went up but it was because you had more doubles it feel felt like what went into that
4: uh i think it was just you know last offseason i had a hitting coach that i got with and we worked on a couple of things that i knew i needed to work on and uh really strengthening my top hand being a right-handed thrower left-handed hitter and i think that is what attributed to that
0: yeah what, what does that do for you when you are working on that top hand what how does that kind of manifest itself uh,
4: well obviously you know when you throw with the opposite hand it uh makes that bottom hand dominant which made my swing very flat mm. and it still is flat which is why i can hit pitches up in the zone well but um It's certainly got a lot better since last year so
0: (laughs) yeah and how do you balance that then because you talk about hitting balls up in the zone so much of modern pitching is throwing up in the zone so how do you kind of marry those two
4: well I think if I'm on time for that pitch up there and can cover that it's better for me to adjust down with the way that my swing works so Mm -hmm.
0: yeah and you got a little bit of a a taste of Worcester at the end how close does that make you feel to Boston
4: I mean you know it's literally one level away man and Mm -hmm different things happens throughout a year you know guys have injuries or need certain guys to come up and do certain things in certain situations so um it's definitely cool to know that i'm that close and playing against triple-a guys guys that have been in the show it you know shows that i'm right there with all of them so
0: mm-hmm. yeah and going back to that adjustment you were talking about when did it feel like it really clicked in for you that it was working
4: so i started to feel really good um, you know getting ready to leave for spring training and um going to spring training and starting to get those at bats and things like that is when i was like i got this so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that'll do it and one reason i wanted to talk to you is you have kind of a unique situation you've already been traded twice in your career i don't think anybody else here in the fall league has gone through that what is it like to be traded not once but twice how do you kind of approach that process
4: yeah i mean the way that i approach it and see it is that you know it obviously shows that people see me fit into their system and value the way that i play i mean I play 110 percent every time you know i hit a ground ball i run it out every time so um it just takes one person to notice and uh yeah
0: yeah what is what is the difference for you when you went from the padres to the red sox that was in season when you went from the mariners to the padres that was out of season so what is it like when you were moved you know at the deadline essentially last year
4: yeah i mean obviously you know going to a new place you know you want to kind of show people what you got and uh, i think that's not too much of what I got caught up in, but, you know, just wanting to prove yourself and um, meeting new guys and new faces, learning kind of what an organization is about. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a little bit of an adjustment process, but I think going through spring training with them and getting acclimated with the staff really helped out.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, like, how long is that adjustment period, especially when you are moving affiliates and you're still expected to perform on a day-to-day basis?
4: Yeah, um, I would say, you know, going into the offseason, you know, we talked obviously about different things I needed to work on going into the next year. And then actually getting to go and spend time with the different coordinators and things throughout spring training um, definitely helped out. And then kind of what I got an idea of what the org was about is when I really start to feel comfortable and just settle into myself and play my own game.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and is there been something the Red Sox have identified with you that you've worked on differently than you were during your time in the Padres system?
4: Um, not really. I mean, obviously, you know, they wanted to see the extra bases go up mm-hmm. with, with me being a speed guy, obviously. My amount of doubles last year was a little low for for that, but um, yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and your career is also fascinating to me, being a 12th rounder and being traded twice. Like you said, being wanted by two different clubs. What was the it like going through that draft process coming out of UNC Greensboro?
4: For sure. I mean, obviously, you know, I put up good numbers, so I had pretty high expectations, but everyone that's gone through the draft knows that things don't always go to plan. Um, my head coach, Sarah Billy Godwin, was actually a longtime scout for the Yankees, hmm and he kind of gave me an idea of some of his friends that were obviously scouts were thinking and then didn't work out that way, but kind of put a chip on my shoulder, honestly. (laughs) I mean, definitely put a chip on my shoulder and I'm gonna keep riding that wave all the way up, man.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, you came flying out of the gate with Visalia, Uh, was it that chip on your shoulder or what what allowed you to make the adjustment to pro ball so quickly?
4: I think it honestly the chip played a part and then just you know believing in myself and my craft I mean we talk about guys that have competitive fire um not everybody has that and I know it's something that I have so it definitely gives me an edge and um I just won't go away so
0: (laughs) fair enough yeah and uh, has anybody ever come up to you and asked for advice of like going through a trade or like what that like and what advice do you give guys who have gone through that process
4: uh the best advice that I would think is just you know be yourself I mean obviously if you're a part of a trade it It means something and is a big deal, Mm -hmm. obviously, to be, especially against um, a big league trade. So uh, just be yourself, play your game, and the rest will fall into place. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned you being a speed guy. You know, since you've been in pro ball, minors have had the different stolen base rules. But having seen those at the major league level now, how much do you feel like that will affect
4: your ability to get there? Uh, I think it will obviously help, you know, to exploit those things and use it to my advantage. So.
0: Yeah, does that kind of put a little extra, not pressure, but like willingness on your part to show off speed and show you can be
4: that guy who can take advantage of the rules? I think so, yeah. I mean, it's something that, you know, constantly wreaks havoc. You know, as soon as I get on base, it's in the back of guys' minds. So they would like to throw a lot of guys' fastballs that hit behind me. And then um – you know, he's got to change his motion. He can't go high like it because it's going to be a free stall base every time. So right. it can help other hitters at the plate, too.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and do you have a constant green light or w- when you guys talk about that, on the either here or with the Sox in general?
4: Yeah, I mean, most of the time I have green light. Obviously, there's certain situations, you know, if we're down a couple runs or up big, they'll, you know, say dial it back. But any other time, I usually have the green light to go ahead and run.
0: <laughs> yeah, and in the Red Sox system, they have another burner in David Hamilton. You guys raced it at all?
4: We haven't yet, but we talked about it, so we'll have to make that happen at some point.
0: You're coming to Fort Myers at some point next year. All right, well, you're
4: the one I'm talking to now. How do you feel like you do? Um, I think I'd give him a run for his money, honestly. I mean, he, you know, he's broken the record, but uh, I think it would be a lot closer race than people would think. All
0: right, well, maybe you guys do a best out of 10 or something like that yeah. in, in Fort Myers next year. All right. Um, And just like going into next year, you know, kind of anticipating this offseason, you talked about working with a hitting coach. Is that going to continue? What are your kind of plans for the offseason?
4: Yeah, so that hitting coach and where I worked out was in Tampa. So after this, I'll definitely plan on going back, obviously, you know, with the success I had. And um, there's a lot of big leaguers who hit with him. So just soaking up that knowledge from them and uh, keep working and grinding. So
0: Any big leaguers in particular you have gravitated towards in those conversations?
4: Yeah, so... When I signed with Seattle, as you know, right. and uh, I met Julio Rodriguez there. and he, <laughs> That's a pretty good one to learn from. I yeah, think, yeah, and he happened to lift at the same place, so he ended up actually introducing me to the hitting coach. Oh, okay. Yeah, and he's a really cool guy, so hes I would say he's one. And then, um, you know, Manuel Margot? Yeah, of course. Yeah, former Red Sox prospect too. Yeah. Right? Outfielder. he was you know in my groups a lot and talked with him a lot and um, I mean the list of names though is, <laughs> is unbelievable so even just sitting there watching you know I'm constantly trying to pick up any little thing that I can get just through the routine and kind of how they go about things so. right
0: yeah and obviously Julio has been a phenom the last two years in the majors what is something you picked up from him just watching him
4: uh, his, his work ethic is really good man I mean it's one thing to you know have talent but then to have talent and then still work hard I mean that's why he's doing what he's doing so yeah no fair enough
0: all right well this is a minor league podcast so i want to ask a couple of quick fire questions what is the your favorite hat you've worn in the minors so far Ooh, favorite hat because you've won a, a few of them so yeah, you got a lot to choose from
4: for sure i think it was honestly with portland i mean i think a lot of guys throughout the eastern league actually voted our hats the best and we had this uh from Memorial Day, we had these green military ones out. Oh, really there cool. You go. Either that one or the Fourth of July, I'd say.
0: All right, fair enough. And we we'll kind of touching on that. You know, being in Portland, being in Worcester, you get to experience New England. Red Sox are the team in New England. What is it like tapping into that culture and just seeing what the the fan base
4: is like? Yeah, I mean, obviously they're very supportive. I mean, people come from all over to you know see us play and things like that, and they're all very supportive. There's a lot of families and kids that were you know. DM in on Instagram, wishing you the best. So it's really cool to experience something like that and know that you have people behind you rooting you on. So,
0: how many lobster rolls did you have?
4: <laughs> I had my fair share. <laughs> for sure.
0: Well, there you go. That's the place to have them. Absolutely. All right. Well, the next one. What is your favorite minor, minor league alternate identity that you've worn so far?
4: Alternate. Is that like the special? Yeah, specialty jersey. Could be one of the food ones. Could be one of the holiday ones or gotcha. Marvel ones, whatever. Uh, I enjoyed the Marvel night. I'm a big Marvel fan. Okay. So uh, wearing those uniforms. I don't know if we wore one in Portland this year but i know last year in fort wayne we did so right
0: all right so who, what's your favorite marvel movie
4: uh favorite marvel movie
1: it's such a hard so, <laughs> i know so yeah that's,
4: right right what what first comes to mind or the first three or so that come to mind put it that way i would say the second avengers one which one is that it's uh
0: age of ultron or the end game
4: Endgame. Endgame. Oh, yeah. Right. That's a good one. That's a good one.
0: Um, all right. Uh, what is your favorite minor league road city to play in? It's like a throw on the run. Favorite road city?
4: Can I give you my favorite field? Sure. That works. Yeah. That works too. Um, Hartford. That one, oh, yeah. That one was sick, man. Their the facilities there were top of the line. And also Worcester, man. That, that was a beautiful ballpark, too. Right. So,
0: what, what did you like most about playing in Worcester?
4: I would say the support. I mean, you know hearing people cheer you on and talking, doing different um, events outside of the field and just meeting people and actually getting to interact. So it was really cool to experience that.
0: Yeah, and, and both Worcester and Hartford have that unique feature in Wright. I mean, it's called the Worcester Wall in Worcester and they have that kind of net in Wright. How does, how does that change how you play outfield when you're playing up against those structures like that?
4: I honestly think it makes it easy just because you know if something is you know burnt over your head, you kind of just turn around and play it off the wall.
0: Mm. Well, yeah, and if you're playing in Boston someday, you might be going up against the Green Monster. How much do you envision that? Or how much do you guys even practice that in the Red Sox system, knowing that that could be coming someday?
4: Yeah, I, th- I think the best time, honestly, is during BP, you know, getting live reads off the bat because that's the most simulated, the game-like reps, and uh, really locking in for – you don't have to do it the whole time, but really taking a round of power shagging, I think, goes a long way.
0: Mm-hmm. And given all the teammates you've pl- played with, either here, Worcester, Portland, beyond, wherever, um, what is one tool you would steal from somebody else and give it to your game?
4: Ooh. <laughs> that's a good question. Um... Do you know who Joshua Mears is? Yeah, of course. Yeah. His raw power. <laughs> his, his
0: raw power, yeah. yeah. Right. I think everybody would take that if yeah, they could. He the ball a long way. Right. Yeah. It, so. No, that's a great one. All right. Well, thanks so much, Corey. I appreciate it. Absolutely, brother. Best of luck, Thursday of Appreciate it. Thank you.
2: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help.
1: interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of ghosts of the miners now here's your correspondent and host joshua jackson
5: welcome back to ghosts of the miners in which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club or player hiding amidst the fraudulent pair One once sought to fill the bleachers. The others never even tried to sell a single ticket, nor anything else. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Battle Creek Gram Slammers. B. The Montpelier Goldfish. C. The Newton Fig Munchers. We're going to get along swimmingly if you pick B, the Montpelier goldfish, who dove into the Quebec-Ontario-Vermont League of 1924. The capital of Vermont, Montpelier got its name from the French phrase that means Mount-Pillier. Whence exactly the goldfish got their name is tough to say with gold star certainty, and I don't want to make any fishy claims. There are sources that credibly suggest the team wore gold-trimmed uniforms in a reflection of the beautiful gold-leafed dome of the Vermont State House. But most period sources that survive today don't contain mention of the goldfish moniker at all. Like many of the minor league and semi-pro club names of the 19th and early 20th centuries, Montpelier's team name likely lacked the official standing or complex marketing underpinnings that we recognize in Miner's team names today. What we do know is that goldfish were a big deal in the 20s, goldfish swallowing being a popular trend among college kids of the day. However, goldfish of the diamond would indeed be swallowed up in short order, hatched as they were into the still waters of a league destined to last but one season. Montpelier had previously had semi-pro teams in concert with the neighboring Burg of Barrie as recently as 1907. The montpelier berry alliance was set to begin a new era in 24, but at a meeting of league officials on April 18, the directors of the Barrie interests withdrew. The whole circuit appeared to be about to collapse before it even began, but Montpelier decided to just keep swimming, letting the goldfish go it alone. Having thus elected to sink or swim, the goldfish were overseen by Arthur W. Punch Daly, who had managed some of the old Montpelier berry teams of yore, and who was instrumental in organizing the miners' rebirth in the capital city. There exists some confusion about who exactly was the field manager of the goldfish, with sources flipping and flopping among names like Bill McCory, the one-time St. Louis Browns hurler who actually spent the 24 season mostly with rival Rutland, and a mysterious Mike McCory, and some suggesting that Daly was actually the manager of Rutland. But Daly was undeniably involved on a daily basis with creating the Montpelier franchise, and newspaper accounts of the summer make it clear that Daly was leading the goldfish by the gills, while it was one Art Kruse who kept Rutland out of any rights. What nobody contests is that Montpelier's big man on the mount in 24 was Al Grabowski, who would be a big league hurler with the Cardinals in 29 and 30, and who posted a remarkable 194 ERA with the Goldfish. But Montpelier might have been tinkering around when it came to building out a roster of strong position players, although the Goldfish did have Joe Evers, brother to Johnny Evers, the Hall of Famer immortalized in Franklin Pierce Adams' poem, Baseball's Sad Lexicon. With a celebrity like that in the family, you'd think Joe Evers would thrive in a fishbowl. Alas, he appears to have posted a 2.95 slugging percentage with Montpelier, and then promptly retired. And in mid-July, the whole Goldfish franchise retired, having gone belly-up with a 16-37 record. It wasn't only the floundering that did the Goldfish in, though. Rutland was in fine fettle at 34-20, but it too collapsed. In fact, presaging Montpelier's pop-out by a few days. The exit of those two teams left only Quebec and Ontario clubs in the ill-fated Quebec-Ontario-Vermont League. And that's how the Montpelier goldfish got flushed. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these animalistic clubs cultivated the field in the miners of yesteryear? A. The Rain Rice Birds B. The Wayne Wheat Wolves see the cane corn crows. Want to know the answer? Head to the harvest, or tune in for the next, Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer, Ben Hill, is out raking, and I've got to change pictures. <laughs>
1: Uh, Big thanks uh, to everybody who has joined the show on this week's episode of the show before the show, including Corey Rozier, the Boston Red Sox, Josh Jackson stopping by for Ghost of the Miners, Benjamin Hill earlier as well. We are uh, nearing nearing the world series and uh matchup of two teams who will play to be the one here in 2023. Last week, we kind of gave our predictions. Uh, I hedged my bets by saying, I thought it would end up being Phillies Astros, but I was kind of pulling for Phillies Rangers. Uh, the Rangers have a, a soft spot in, um, in my heart, uh, having worked one year, one season with that organization. Um, and then the Rangers went out, won the first two games, looked terrific in Houston, and then kind of got waxed uh, back in Arlington last night in game three the D backs uh game one looked like maybe they were going to be able to to sneak in late and steal that game. Game two, they just uh kind of forgot to show up. Um, and they head back to the desert for game three. Sam, how you feeling? You you called um Rangers Phillies, and we are on the inside track for that right now. How are you feeling about your prediction?
0: I mean, as things stand right now, I feel obviously pretty good about the Phillies. And then I also felt good about the Phillies last week when I made that. Uh, call before the NLDS was up. <laughs> and I was like, Oh no, this, cause this is gonna blow up my face real fast. But then the Phillies came through on that end. Um, I think it's gonna be Phillies and five. I think the D backs do get one here at home. Um, uh, they are too good of a t- like they, that offense can't click at any time. Uh, and you know, if the Phillies just have an off night, which happens in baseball, I think they can steal one for sure. Um, you know, maybe Corbin Carroll goes off, has two homers, four RBIs, they win six to four, something like that. We'll see. Uh, but I do think the Diamondbacks are capable of us stealing at least one. And we saw, you know, in, in game three with the Astros, they are capable of becoming a juggernaut again, too. They had to hold off the Rangers. Like Josh Young took over for Evan Carter in terms of like the rookie standout for Texas. Um, but I, I think the Astros are not going to go down quite so easily. I, I'm sticking with Rangers in six. Um, I still think that team is very dynamic and has the pitching, has the bullpen uh, to make it work. And obviously they have a, a game advantage right now. And um, so I, I'm i going to go, yeah, Rangers in six, Phillies in five.
1: Uh, here's the bigger question. Are you going to be able to st- – scrape together five whole American dollars to buy a ticket uh to game three. No, they're up to twenty bucks for game three now. So since we since we dogged D backs fans at the beginning of the show, they have uh they've quadrupled in price. Twenty whole dollars.
0: <laughs> well again, it's just it's a Thursday at two o'clock. It is, here. I know.
1: I'm just like, I got, you know, I got to, I got to get after it a little bit. No, no, it is a very, it's a, it's not an easy time. I did actually see a comment on, uh, on the internet, which I try to avoid generally, but I thought this was a very cool take on this. Somebody said, oh, that's good, actually. That means families and kids can go see an MLB playoff game for an affordable price. And I was like, damn, that's a great way of looking at this. Uh, yeah. Like, if you have the ability to, like, take your kiddo out of school and go to Game 3 of the National League Championship Series and get tickets for a price that you can afford, that's awesome. I think that's super cool.
0: Yeah, or if you're like Ben Hill, bring your mom. Yeah, you know? exactly. Exactly. Making you can be the family kid
1: bringing the parent instead of vice yeah, versa. Yeah. So I think right. that's super cool. Um, and you know I don't think the D backs are going to go as quietly. Uh, that team, you know, Mike Hayes and Tori Lavallo, they have put together something impressive in Arizona. Um, you know what they did to the to the Dodgers. Obviously, I think they're going to get one, maybe two at home. Um, I still think the Phillies are going to take that series, but I don't think it's going to be a sweep. Um, you know, now granted they go out today and, and they jump all over Arizona early and they get a win in game three. This thing is pretty much over. Um, but I, I think the D backs have got some fight left in them. Um, the Rangers. I'm I'm not sure. You know, i they were seven and zero to start the playoffs. Uh, Max Scherzer, You know, I think, unfortunately, we're kind of witnessing the twilight of Max Scherzer's career. Um, And, you know, that's uh, it's it's weird to see these guys who have been so great for so long, him and Justin Verlander. And, you know, seeing them now uh, under the big lights, the bright lights, the postseason and thinking like, I don't know how many times we're going to see this again. That's kind of tough. And he was not great last night in game three. I don't know. The the Rangers uh, are playing. I listen to a college football podcast where they talk about zombie Alabama. Like you just can't ever count out Alabama because they know how to do this. That's the Astros in, in major league baseball. We got the zombie Astros now. Um, I don't know. I got no idea how to predict that series. Still. I think the Phillies are going to handle the the rest of the, the NLCS, but if the Astros came back and reeled off the next three and won it in six, I can't say I'd be completely surprised. Um, And that's what makes the playoffs so fun,
0: you know? Yeah, and one thing I love about this series so far is there have been three games. The road team has won every game.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, the Rangers were not, uh, you know, I don't know. They weren't overwhelmed by the moment by playing in Houston, which like Houston is very comfortable playing in the ALCS at home. Uh, They weren't overwhelmed by that. And the Astros aren't overwhelmed by anything in the playoffs and take game three going back. So like neither of these teams are, are scared of what's in front of them. Uh, and that trickles down to Evan Carter. Evan Carter is like one of the most even keeled players yeah. I've ever seen. Yeah, Never mind rookies, just overall. I remember yeah. talking to him in April and just noticing like this guy is so comfortable talking about himself, about his story, about who he is as a baseball player. Uh, And that's carried straight through to the majors. Um, and the Rangers have a bunch of those guys, Corey Seager. It's not somebody who gets yeah. too high, too low. Yeah. Marcus Semien doesn't get too high, too low. Like, the, that team is built around those dudes. It's You compare that to the Phillies, who are, like, are always too high. Right, right, exactly. They, they, they make that work. And they uh, ride it.
1: Yeah, they make it work. Um, it is funny. After the, the American League Division Series, they interviewed Corey Seager on MLB Network. And, you know, you and I talked to Corey Seager a ton as he was coming up. Did we ever have Corey Seager on the show? I don't think we ever had him on the show. I don't think we did,
0: but I'll look that up while you're talking. Go ahead.
1: Um, But you know, we we talked to him at double A and at triple A, and he's coming up with the Dodgers, and he's you know he's a stud. He's already got big league bloodlines. You know, Kyle's already showing out in the majors and all that. Corey Seager was nothing if not an extremely uh, polite and very even keeled interview every single time we talked and they're talking to him on, on MLB network after uh, the Rangers won the, the division series. And I thought, Oh, he's the same exact dude. Like he is the same guy being interviewed and that's great. Good for him, you know, to be uh, a big league star, uh, to be leading a team, you know, to the precipice of the world series and still just be the same guy that you've been throughout your baseball life. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, same goes for Kyle Schwarber. I was watching him uh, be an interview by Tom Verducci. Uh, no, by uh, Matt Weiner, I believe, a couple days ago. And uh, and Kyle Schwarber seems like the same guy who we used to talk to when he was coming up in the minor leagues. That always makes you really happy when, uh, you know, these guys who you've seen grow and, and come up throughout their time, uh, and now they're having all the success at the big league level, and they just seem to be kind of the same dudes that they were. I find that very cool.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, and kind of along those lines. Bryce Harper, who was like before yeah. my time covering, right. like my first so, year was the year he got called up to the majors. Um, so I never interviewed Bryce Harper or anything like that, but certainly remember him, Trout, and uh, Matt Moore being like the big three. Yeah, of when I started covering prospects, um, but he had a great quote the other night, which was about how this is not pressure to him, <laughs> pressure was getting taken first overall, in the yeah, draft. like. Trying to go into junior college at such a young age and being like, this is all so I can sign a big deal coming right. out of school. That was pressure to me. Everything after that is fine. Like, I've handled that before. And this is this is gravy to me. And I'm just having fun. And you can tell. And I I love that. I love that perspective.
1: He really is. We've talked about this before on the show. Bryce Harper, love him or hate him, the thing that I have always appreciated most about Bryce Harper is that he so unapologetically loves baseball. Mm -hmm. And I think we live in a world where – People have to so often apologize for what they like about baseball uh, and that it's not the NFL and it's not the NBA and it's not, you know, the the cliche uh, sport that Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift is showing up to and all that kind of stuff. Bryce Harper is so unapologetic about his love for the game and his uh, desire to be one of the greatest who's ever done it. And the fact that, yeah, like he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated at 15, 16, whatever it was. He has never left the public consciousness since then. And he just continues to do the job and keeps getting better. You know, he homers on his birthday in the National League Championship Series. He is on the verge of leading leading a team to -to back-to-back National League pennants. Uh, He's doing it as one of the most visible stars of the sport. Is he as great a player as Mike Trout? No. But has he taken on the mantle of all the pressure that you could ever put on a teenage athlete and somehow been as good as the expectations uh that were set for him that's incredible you know i think he's done all that and the fact that we still might have 10 plus years of bryce harper to watch is pretty damn cool as well especially now that he's taken to first base so well and you know might continue to move around as he as he gets healthy again um but man what a what an amazing guy uh to be an asset for this game and to to be doing what he's doing in philly i also think it's very cool that uh, we are, thankfully, thank goodness, hopefully never again going to see a neutral site World Series. Uh, but the fact there was a World Series played in that new ballpark in Texas and you thought like, man, that's so weird. The Rangers didn't get a chance to play in the first World Series, of their home park. They can do that now. It's only three yeah. years later and the Rangers can finally do that. I think that's very cool for the Rangers
0: and Rangers fans. Yeah, I was gonna say, especially for the fans. Yeah, and watching their park being used in that way, and like, yeah. I get it, why it was, but um, now being able to participate in that, we'll, we'll see. Like again, yeah, not ruling lot out to the be a lot to around.
1: be decided, right? Yes,
0: yeah. Uh, they're they're our, playing meaningful ALCS games.
1: which is, that is pretty dang cool in its own uh, in yeah. its own right. Um, so a lot still to be uh, determined in the American League and National League Championship Series, and of course by next week when we more than likely know uh, where we are headed for Game One of the World Series, uh, we will be with you all the way through. Uh, as baseball crowns a champion here in 2023. For Sam Dykes, for Benjamin Hill, Josh Jackson, and everyone else at MILB, my name is Tyler Mon. That'll do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. We'll catch you next week.